0: You're listening to Fueling the Future of Transport, hosted by Tammy Klein, the founder and CEO of Transport Energy Strategies. We'll talk all about the fuels and energy it takes to keep the world moving forward. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show today. I am, I always say I'm so excited, but I really am, I'm always excited, but I'm really, really excited to have with me on the show today, Arkady Sasanov, who is the CEO of FreeWire. So you've probably heard a little bit about FreeWire being peppered into the, po- the podcast, especially having interviewed Parkland uh, recently. Um, and I'm so happy to have Arcady here today to talk to us about FreeWire, what FreeWire is doing, um, and about the electrification space uh, in general. Arcady, welcome to the program.
1: Tammy, the pleasure is mine. I really appreciate it.
0: So... Um, let's get right into it. For the listeners who may not be so familiar, can you talk a little bit more about FreeWire, what FreeWire does? I kind of gave it away in the intro, but you can talk a little bit more about it. And what sets FreeWire apart from other charging providers out there?
1: Happy to. Um, There's a number of different answers to that. So first of all, FreeWire is a technology company, and we focused over the last nine years on solving what we believe is the biggest pain point within the world of ultra fast EV charging infrastructure. And that pain point is the utility infrastructure required to support ultra fast charging. If you look at most commercial retail sites, they don't have the kind of power necessary to enable high speed, fast charging for electric vehicles. A typical gas station or convenience store may use 50 kilowatts, five zero kilowatts of power by itself, but a Tesla will consume 150 kilowatts at a minimum. And you can imagine having a a bank of vehicles on a site that need to charge at the same time. And all of a sudden you need a megawatt of power. And that's not the kind of infrastructure that you, the site was designed for. That's not the kind of infrastructure that the utility expected that site to have. So In order to deploy high power charging, we either need to build out our aging grid infrastructure or what the technology that we've landed on and have developed and designed and brought to market is something that we call battery integrated charging. That means we've paired battery storage with high power charging, and that enables us to deliver that ultra fast charge without requiring any utility upgrades on sites. Where the company is a little bit unique is that. We develop these technology solutions. We also develop software to manage these charging systems. And we have a suite of services to help our customers deploy them in the ground. We sell this entire package of technology, software, and services to a retailer, meaning that there are thousands of retailers across North America who are interested in becoming charging operators, but they don't know what they don't know. And
0: it's very scary for them.
1: It's a very, very scary. It's this is an entirely new business that they certainly haven't they haven't tried before. They don't have the teams internally to understand what what don't I know? How do I deal with utilities? What do customers need on site when they're charging? Where do I place these things? What does interoperability with vehicles look like? Yeah. there's a lot of they don't know and so we set them up with a package of this entire technology software service plus education and awareness programs to help them become a highly sophisticated operator of charging infrastructure. So we sell that entire package to them and they have now all of a sudden spun up a business internally. they're able to market it, they're able to deliver high power to customers and 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 really start to capture, the rest of share of wallet of that customer, just like they would if they were selling oil and gas.
0: You know what I heard earlier this week, someone told me um, for some fuel retailers, they're more interested um, or more comfortable with the idea of dispensing hydrogen um, at uh, at their stores and locations than they are electrification because it's such a black box for them. And I thought that was incredible because I don't see widespread dispensing of hydrogen myself personally. I mean, and certainly not in the coming years, whereas I do see it with electrification, but I think that highlights what you're talking about, which is the discomfort, the lack of, we don't know what we don't know the lack of, you know, really, having an understanding of the space and what's required and frankly you know for some retailers you know in the early years they dabbled and tried and it did not go well <laughs> for them so it really underscores what you're what you're saying that they would rather do hydrogen because it's more comfortable for them than than charging
1: it's interesting that it should be as easy to sell an electron as it is to sell a hydrogen molecule as it is to sell a hydrocarbon. They're all just commodities, but they work in very different ways. And I understand where the retailers have a little bit of, of heartache doing that electrification charging your vehicle just takes longer. So you've taken this thing that should, that was previously 90 seconds or two minutes long, which is refueling your vehicle and you've turned that that now, that now into a 15-minute experience. And your site and your retail offering may not have been designed for that 15-minute experience. You also now introduce the complexity of interoperability. I know I can pour a hydrocarbon or a hydrogen molecule into a vehicle, and it's going to work every single time because the vehicle doesn't need to talk to the hydrogen dispenser or the fueling dispenser. Now with electrification, there's a complex handshake and communication protocol that has to happen. And they don't always work, frankly speaking, right? right? The industry is not there yet where it's, you know, really turnkey or plug and play, whatever the terminology you want to use. So it, that, that is a scary thought for the retailer of someone having to walk into the store and say, Hey, this charger doesn't work with my particular car. And the retailer goes, I, I, I don't know. What's, I, I don't know what this looks like. Right. So I, we understand that. And that's where we try to bring some of this. We spend months and months and months on education with these retailers before we ever sell them a single unit of, of product. And that education we feel is one of the most important things that we can offer them. But we also then try to help them understand what are the issues you're going to run into with utility infrastructure? Yeah. Because there's something really interesting happening in, in I think, the oil and gas space That never happened before, which is that the oil and gas majors and super majors are historically, they own their uh, extraction, exploration, uh, refining, distribution, all the way to selling hydrocarbons to the end consumer. They own that entire value chain. And now all of a sudden with electrification, they, they own the selling of the electron to the end consumer. But they're not in generation of electrons. They're not in distribution. They don't own the wires. Right. And so now, all of a sudden, from being a price maker and owning the value chain, they're a price taker to a utility who is and whose rate structures and business models are specifically designed to be confusing. Right. Specifically designed so that a Facilities manager or retail site operator, especially for the franchisees who have, you know, one to fifty sites. There's no way they understand what a demand charge is or what uh, their utility rate tariff really breaks down into. So that is a scary thought for these oil and gas players. And and what I what I think there is going to happen is they're going to continue developing technologies and continue moving upstream in that. that value chain of the electron and try to take part of that value chain away from the utilities. Now, who do I think is going to win? I believe it's going to be the oil and gas majors, because if you look at the utility market fragmented 33,500 utilities in the U S if you look at the super majors, you and I can both count all of the super majors on this planet. Right.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And and Most, so mostly on one
0: hand, but there's a couple on the on other. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, there's just, um, it, and the balance sheets and capital budgets between these super majors are so large. I mean, they printed record EBITDA and record profits in, in 2022.
0: Now, so, a lot of them are whereas, plowing it into renewables, to, to, oh, to, okay, to your of point. Course.
1: Of course. And you you already see some of these you know makings in the industry Shell bought first utility in the in the UK, right? So now they're a retail um utility operator in the UK. BP has a entire generation division called first uh what do they call it? It's not first solar, but it's a solar division that specifically spins up um solar plants and and goes into the generation space. So there's there's a lot of movements in the industry to show that the integrated oil companies are really becoming the integrated energy companies, but that's to the detriment of the utilities that they're now having to face across the table.
0: So basically what you're saying is, or what I hear you saying is your technology kind of leapfrogs um, to a certain extent over the utilities. And then the oil and gas, and I a hundred percent agree with you, by the way, they want, they're going to want to control <laughs> the space and it's going to be good for them in terms of their decarbonization goals and, and other sorts of things. They're going to leapfrog around the the utility. So, you know, I wanted to ask you more about how you got started, but since we're on the topic, yeah. Where do you think that that leaves, um, you know, utilities, because, you know, I I mean, and I also think when I look at FreeWires wires um, technology, you know, and I see the coming of uh, NEVI funding, the expansion of charging, everything that is going to have to happen on the utility side for conventional charging, if you will, to, you know, You know, stabilize the grid. I I do think that that's going to be an issue in, in the future, but also like just adding the interconnection and everything that has to, you know, like all 50 PUCs in 50 states having to approve, you know, multi billions of dollars of projects and just, I just see this massive backlog, um, that has the the potential for happening. Um, to me, when I look at what you guys are doing, I'm thinking, wow, these guys are really well positioned. So is, is my thinking right when it comes to like these issues that we may be seeing with, with utilities, PUCs, getting projects approved, adding, you know, in- interconnection infrastructure to be able to support charging and it seems to bode really well for you guys.
1: Well, your predictions are already correct. Utilities are already a, a, a hindrance, and you can you can see that there are twelve to sometimes thirty months or more delays yeah. in deployment of charging infrastructure. And it's it's not the charging companies or it's not the retailers moving slowly. It's them saying, if I need new power to this site, then the utility has to bring that service to my site, and That's a public works project. That's assessing upstream substation capacity and then running wires overhead or underground and getting them to my site. And usually it takes, again, 12 to 24 months just to get those wires to your site in the first place. And then you can install charging infrastructure on your site. And that's a non-starter. If you're looking at some of these programs, Uh, NEVI being a great example, that was a $7.5 billion announcement. That was announced in August of 2021. Correct. Right? Mm -hmm. And now fast forward almost a year and a half to today, only one state has issued their kind of NEVI RFP. And of course, some of that delay was due to uncertainty around the guidance and the guidelines. But think about it from the administration's perspective. They're saying, we announced this money almost a year and a half ago. So taxpayers felt like they spent it at that point, right? Right. There's that natural feeling. But what do we have to show for it? We're now a year and a half later, we're not seeing the charging infrastructure in the ground. There's not a single NEVI deployment, quote unquote, that's happened because the programs are just spinning up. And once those programs start to get awarded in each individual state, Then you're looking at another 12 to 24 months or more for the utility to build out their infrastructure. And it's hard in some of these places. NEVI is focused on infilling highways across the country. And some of those highway locations are 20 miles from the nearest utility infrastructure. And and so you're going to to look at and look back on this, and it's going to be a two to three year gap between the announcement of NEVI and actually seeing charging infrastructure in the ground. And consumers feeling like, and taxpayers feeling like they got something for their money. And that does not bode well for the administration. That does not bode well for them. So what our technology is designed to do is to enable incredibly rapid rollout of charging because we avoid all of these utility infrastructure upgrades. And we just we just did this and proved this out at, at a pretty significant scale with Parkland. Mm-hmm. And, and you, you spoke to Scott on another show who is, who's incredible and we work with him Almost every single day. In fact, probably every single day we talk, we talk to him. But Parkland said, we need to roll out these sites in British Columbia and we need to create an, a network basically day one, mm-hmm. not these one off sites here and there. And you don't create that consumer adoption, you don't create that consumer feeling of, I have a location that I can go to. Yeah. So we want to just. I call
0: out. it ubiquity. You need to have a sense of ubiquity for consumers to sort of really feel the comfort.
1: So That's right. They need to know that, that they can come to your site and charge. And yeah. and so they wanted to create that ubiquity. And over the course of three months, we deployed, you know, 40 plus units um, across, I'd say, 25 sites or so in British Columbia. And that's in the middle of the winter. So it was quite <laughs> challenging. Quite challenging. You, can ima- you can imagine, but yes. but we did that. And the only way that's possible is, is not relying on in- utility upgrades. And, and so they've been very pleased. We've done this across the country. We continuously go out to retailers and we say, you don't need to go through this complex and time-consuming and costly utility infrastructure project. You can go with this solution, use existing power on your site, still deliver that high power charging to to customers. And what they what you also sort of need to understand and remember is that for every one of our units that we deploy, we call them the boost charger, mm-hmm. there's an embedded battery system that that system intrinsically, it actually strengthens the grid for everyone that we deploy. For every unit that we deploy, we're actually helping the grid, not hurting it. Right. Because what we're effectively doing is flattening the demand curve. Instead of this peaky or spiky demand curve that you would typically see with high power charging,
0: mm-hmm.
1: where we just have a constant draw all day
0: right. and
1: it's a relatively low power draw. And if you aggregate that at scale, mm-hmm. you can now see that the utility can can predict out what its demand will be at any point in time. And that's actually quite helpful for the grid and it serves the lower rates for all rate payers. So, um, you're, you're writing a question.
0: So I want to go back and, and I, I want to ask you a bit later about the applications because they seem like they would go beyond charging, but we'll come back to that. I want to ask you about how you started uh, FreeWire because you had a successful career in finance doing your thing uh, there. How did you go from finance to charging? What led you to, to jump ship and get into this space as opposed to, uh, another technology space. And, you know, and what was it like for you as a a founder, like, you know, coming up with this idea and then, you know, putting it together, selling it to investors, doing the whole thing.
1: Wow. That's, uh, I'd love to tell you that story. So as with any good entrepreneur or founder story, it starts actually starts with an immigrant story,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and um, as you can tell by my my thick accent, mm-hmm. there, I, I, I am an immigrant, and mm-hmm. I was
0: Ukrainian. I was
1: uh, Ukrainian. I was born, mm-hmm. and it's it's funny. I, I used to not be able to say that because nobody in the U.S. knew where Ukraine was, and and now I can actually tell people that I'm from the Ukraine. We moved to the country when in 91 1991, and um, as soon as we moved here, my, my dad needed to find a job. And, uh, the, and the first thing that he could find that most immigrants find, right. Is, is driving a taxi. And so I grew up from the age of five to watching my dad drive this taxi and, and every single weekend we would work on this car. And the, this, this car was the lifeblood for the family, right? It's what put food on the table, uh, it's honestly, it's what put myself and my sister through college. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it was very automotive was very important to us. This car was very important to us and working on it every weekend was my relationship with my father. And so every weekend it would be, uh, checking or changing the suspension. I did an engine swap at 11 years old. And so I, wow. that stuck, that stuck with me and every, you know, everything about automotive stuck with me. And so eventually I end up, Going to school, I graduated college. I I got a career in finance, and I, my mom was very proud, of course. Uh, but you know, I reached a point where I started to be a little bit disconnected from what I did and the work. And mm-hmm. you know, it's interesting. We were I was developing models and you know, pushing these models through a an, an algorithm, and that decide those algorithms decided uh, investment decisions. And you know, and Stocks were traded and and money was moved and pension funds maybe in five or 10 years would would get more money. <laughs> it right. was and so that that was the work. And um and that the impact there just didn't seem immediate enough for me. Right. Mm-hmm. I and I went to graduate school in, in California. And during that time I said, listen, this is this is my moment, right? I have no mortgage, no kids. And it's my moment to do something. I've always wanted to do something in automotive. I harken back to those days working on cars with my father, and but there was no way I could go into legacy automotive. It just oh. I, I could see it in 2014 when I when I started this project, which is now a company that this there was a an ecosystem forming around electrification. It was forming in the San Francisco Bay Area. There certainly were no EVs on the streets of New York or Houston, yeah. yeah. But in the Bay Area, I saw something happening and. Uh, I decided it was the time to make a bet. So um, I started doing what any entrepreneur does, which is I rolled up my sleeves. I went out and asked questions of anybody who had an electric vehicle charger. Uh, and these are mostly companies like Google and Facebook. They had some chargers, but these were some retailers as well. And mm-hmm. I just walked up and I asked questions. I said, Hey, why did you install this? What are some of the pain points? And the pain point consistently over and over and over again i kept hearing was the whole utility infrastructure build out was a pain in my rear mm-hmm. and and when you hear that so many times you think to yourself there's got to be a way to fix this um at that point i'm not an engineer i know nothing about batteries except for the fact that i put two of them in my remote control and i can change the <laughs> channel on my tv but right. but i i realized that there was something there that i i figured that you could use energy storage to circumvent some of these utility upgrades. And, and so I just started building a prototype the same way I would work on cars. I sort of figured it out, right? Mm-hmm. And I I built this little prototype of a battery system on wheels that could charge people's cars. And I said, could this be the solution to your answer? And I went back to those retailers. I went back to those, those corporate campuses and actually showed them what I built about two months after the conversation that we initially had. And, you know, and then there's some, there's some emotion there, right? People right. Um, are impressed. And this is Silicon Valley. So you see these kinds of sparks happen every once in a while. And people know what the sparks look like out here. Right, right. So I got some instant feedback. Uh, and I got a customer who said, hey, if you could figure this out, we'll pay for it. In fact, here's a pre-order and we will pay and a PO, go try to raise money on this. And that customer was LinkedIn. Uh, oh, for wow. their. Yeah, it was their uh it was their director of, of global workplace so and he said if this works this can really solve some of our problems i, I used that po and this little demo and prototype that i had built and walked around you know with a tin cup uh <laughs> and asking angel investors if they were interested and and some were you know basically scrambled up enough money to to, to build something real uh and and it, went on from there. When this, I launched the product the first time it was a mobile charging service, right? It wasn't what it is today, which is ultra fast stationary charging with integrated batteries, battery, but it was a mobile charging service because that was where the market was at that point. Right. I launched right. it on, on LinkedIn's campus and the, uh, person moving these things around were, was me. I oh was out on LinkedIn's parking lot every single day. I would wake up at five in the morning get to the office by six, take these mobile batteries, put them on the back of a truck, get down to LinkedIn's campus by about 7.30 or 8 every morning. Wow. And and set up this charging service and then charge people's cars all day. And in between charging cars, I would grab a, a sport coat, put it on, drive over to Sand Hill Road, which is the famous road in Silicon yeah. Valley where all the VCs are lined up. Right. Uh, shake my tin cup, get back in the car, go back to LinkedIn, move these uh, mobile chargers, battery integrated chargers around and rinse them. And I I did that for about six months before I was finally able to hire my first employee to do this. Um, So I ate my own dog food. You know, you kind of roll up your sleeves and do everything. Yeah. But nine years later, now here we are and the company is 250 people. Um so and growing. Uh, and growing. Yeah. And and we've raised um 250 million dollars in venture capital. So that, that tin cup ended up being very, very large.
0: So it's like, a, um, really, like a big flask. It's like a big uh <laughs>
1: yeah. 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 But it was a not without Yeti. Its, uh, yeah. <laughs> it was not without its you know, turmoil and you know, those those chasms of death right. are real in right. in the world of entrepreneurship. And we we crossed many of them. Hmm. Um but thankfully, the, the market ended up being what I expected, right? I, just me taking a bet on the fact that electrification would come, you know, there was still the conversation for many years after 2014, mm-hmm. that this was never going to be the market that it would be. And now we look forward to today and the automotive OEMs, the vast majority have been committed to full electric by 2030 or 2035. Yeah, There's, they've announced $626 billion in spending by 2030 to develop electrified yeah. engines and platforms. So it's, yeah, it's no longer, a you know, an if.
0: So what specific, you know, sort of point in time, like you started in 2014, that's, you know, really, it wasn't, to to me, anyway, it wasn't clear that there really was going to be a a massive, you know, Tesla was and is a game changer and I knew that. But what was it, because it was so early and it wasn't a given, there weren't supportive policies that are in place like we're, we're seeing coming into effect now, the consumer interest, all, all these things that are beginning to coalesce. So what was the fact, you know, the point in time for you where you said, yeah, this is, this is going to happen. I mean, was there something specific? Or, you know, like for Scott, like Scott Sherabura, he said, you know, it was when GM announced, you know, they were going to go hundred percent electric in 2035. And that's, that for him was that point in time where he knew there was no turning back and this really was going to be a thing. Did you have a similar light bulb that sort of gave you confidence that this was going to happen? Really?
1: Happen? Yeah. Yeah. It, it happened a lot earlier than that. I mean, yeah. it had to, for me to, for, build this. Yeah, but, exactly. Uh, it, it was when I, I tore apart my first electric vehicle and this was not too long after I had started the company. So it was probably 2015 at this point. I'd already kind of made a bet, but it was still, um, still pretty in the early days. Right. I, but I remember getting a Fiat 500 E and it was a, <laughs> you probably know the Fiat 500. Yes. It's a little tiny car little cute yeah, and it was when the Fiat Chrysler, now Stellantis, still existed, and they created yeah. this compliance car for for California. And I got my hands on one, and I just wanted to see what was inside. So um, weekend project, you know, put it up on a lift, tore it apart, dropped the battery pack, and and I looked at what remained, and there was almost nothing on the ground. I mean, it was just a battery pack that was relatively simple to design and make at this point. A motor that looked and was effectively a souped-up washing machine motor. Right. The same motor that we've been using in washing machines for you know whatever it is, you know, many decades now. Oh my gosh. A, a more powerful version of that is effectively what's in your in your vehicle and not much else. You know, yeah. the complexity of these combustion motors with Wires and pipes and hoses yep. and people overlook you know, that.
0: It's very costly to produce it, on different platforms to boot. It's not oh, cheap. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And and I just think about it now. Imagine you telling or me telling my kids, you telling your kids one day that we used to drive around and there were thousands of little explosions that happened within the hood of the car. <laughs> and we had to control those little explosions. So how did those explosions happen? Well, we used dinosaurs. And you know that concept seems crazy and complex. And when you look at how simple the 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 platform of an electric vehicle is, you start to think to yourself, simplicity always wins. It always wins. You're going to be able to cost that down to almost nothing compared to where we have combustion motors. And at that point, I said, this this has to win.
0: So. Um you talked a little bit earlier about your th- prediction. I'm going to call it a prediction about the oil companies getting into the energy business, but now several of them have partnered with you. We talked about Parkland. We talked about P66. Um, you know, how did you convince them, and you know, you and your team um, how did you convince these guys? Cause oil company people in my very direct experience they're extremely conservative and they're tough. I mean, they're really tough guys. So, how did you guys manage to pull that off with these these companies? And I know you're working with others as, as well.
1: Yeah, me, me and my team is is the the key point there. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's everyone from uh, Chevron and philip Sixty Six, with both announced right. national rollouts, and those deployments are somewhere on the ground, and others are going live shortly. Um, to Parkland, uh, BP, mm-hmm. uh, Road Ranger, Racetrack, uh, mm-hmm. Rotten Robbies. Um, there's Circle K and a, and a number of others. And there are more that we're signing up every single day. And and really, well, there's a couple of things we did. One is we decided early on that we believe the natural owner of the EV driver is the retailer, the oil and gas company specifically, but the retailer more broadly. Yeah we don't want to be the only ones to own that driver and other companies in our space took a different approach, right? The, okay. There's EA, Electrify America and EVgo, go and their focus is on owning the end customer. Right. And uh, we looked at it and we said, the retailers have owned the end customer for a hundred years now. They know how to upsell them car washes and coffee and candy bars. Um, They've integrated loyalty programs into their retail offerings. It, yeah. There's just they are the natural owners of that end consumer. So we're going to take the approach of being a technology OEM to the retailers right. to help scale them up and to be a very sophisticated operator of charging infrastructure. That was a bet that we took in the early days. I'd say it was counterpositioning. Mm-hmm. Nobody else in the EV charging space had really oh, no. thought of it this way. Yeah. So we counter-positioned ourselves against others in the space, which by the way, is a very powerful strategy for an entrepreneur listening to this show. Counterpositioning is one of the most—it's a—it's a bold bet to make, you know, the high chance of failure, but it's a very powerful strategy if you get it right. Right. Uh, so we counterpositioned ourselves, and then the the market kind of proved us right, and and it really supercharged last year, as I mentioned, when the the oil major started printing record EBITDA, record profits. So if you look at the market last year, the, the energy sector of the SP 500 was the only sector that actually uh, was positive. Yeah. It was, it was a, it rose about 57%, whereas the entire market was a 19% drawdown. So these oil and gas companies printed record profits and started putting those, that money back into decarbonization technologies. And by the way, they had enough money for both share buybacks and investing in exploration and decarbonization, right? Isn't so that
0: they, interesting? They could,
1: <laughs> they can spread it around. Um, and, and taking that bet meant that we became attractive in the eyes of the, that retailer. We didn't, we, we weren't threatening because we didn't want to own that end consumer. That's really important That's key. to a reach that the, a retailer retailers. Um, they have some history with other companies that have come in and said, Oh, we're not going to, Touch the end consumer, then they touch the end consumer, right? And so there's there's a little bit of you know, do I have to really believe that I keep I, I keep the end consumer, and, and you just handle the technology piece, and and so we had to prove that out effectively, and then we developed the technology that was had specific and, and significant value propositions for these small retail and fueling sites. You know, the fact is these small fueling sites don't have the space to install a new utility transformer on their site. Yeah. They might have a small transformer right in the back, but they they can't. So there's just not a large enough amount of land there. Right. They don't want to give up parking spaces to put new switch gear and power distribution panels. They don't want to dig up the, the forecourt. The fact is
0: Which is for, very, very expensive to do, by the way.
1: Very expensive. And risky. frankly, I, I I don't want to expose what's underneath. Right? Mm-hmm. I don't know what's happening with the tanks down there. I just don't want to I don't want to open that up to scrutiny. Yeah. And so developing a technology that didn't require that that big build out on the site didn't require you opening up the forecourt that doesn't require any new utility infrastructure to be deployed on site, which they don't have space for anyways, was just a really unique value prop combined with our approach of saying. You own the end customer. We we give you the technology. We help scale you up. That was a really compelling value proposition to these folks. With a couple of them, we've even taken another step. So we've said, listen, we know the holy grail for you is to be able to, to, to go from selling electrons to tracking that consumer and their purchasing habits within the store. That kind of retail integration, that integration with loyalty programs. That's a key that isn't quite there in the industry today. So we we worked with one of our top retailers, Parkland, to do this, actually. So we integrated our AMP platform, which is our Mm -hmm. software management platform, with their consumer uh, platform, which is called Journey. Mm -hmm. And that integration allows them to track what's happening throughout that value chain for that consumer as they're charging all the way. To capturing the rest of their share of wallet, right? So that, right. that's really key. And it's kind of a first of its kind integration. And we, we plan to do this to more consumers, but you can see every step that we take is how do we make our consumers or sorry, our retailers more um more profitable? Mm-hmm. And how do we help them become even better operators of charging infrastructure?
0: So you talked about at the very beginning, um, you know, being an energy. Storage or energy company. So to me, that implies that perhaps there are applications, or potential applications, or or other commercial pathways beyond charging. Is that true? And if so, you know, can you talk about what kinds of things you guys might be thinking of for the future?
1: Yeah, this is our little secret, but not (laughs) not so little anymore. Um, So yes. We're fundamentally a, a, a vertically integrated energy storage company, right? We, right. we make battery packs.
0: You've proven you can power. do it in a difficult yeah, we space. make
1: Yeah. We make power electronics. We make battery packs. We make energy management software. That's fundamentally what we make. Now that happens to be used in an application to deliver ultra fast charging for, for EVs. And, and that's great. But fundamentally every single day, what what we're deploying on customer sites is a, large format battery. Mm-hmm. And, and our goal as a, as a business is, of, of course, we, we're we happy to, to kind of solve the pain points of, of ultra fast charging and we're happy to scale up retailers, but there's so much excess capacity in all of those batteries that we've deployed and aggregating all that capacity and yeah. being able to use it to partic- to provide grid services is a really lucrative business model. So um, we're starting to reach the amount of deployed capacity in certain market geographies. Yeah, where we're a pretty important player in that geography. I mean, um, I keep harking back on this, but British Columbia, right? We're the largest deployed battery in British Columbia, and even better, we're a distributed battery. So not only that is, it's not just in one place. It is the largest battery, and it's also distributed. And in many of the markets that we're in, where we're either already or one of the top few largest batteries in that market. Now, what we have to do is convince our retailers that it is valuable for them to, to, to aggregate the that capacity that they own. Cause remember they own the asset, Right. aggregate the capacity that they own into this central platform of ours, because it's going to provide them some sort of value. That value of course is money, right? It's either yeah. savings on their utility bill or it's. A new revenue stream from grid services that they didn't have before, yeah. but if they do believe that and and basically allow us to use some of that excess battery capacity and aggregate that, then every every party wins, right? They make they either get savings on their utility bill and a new revenue stream. The retailer does. Uh, the utility is gets all of this new distributed energy storage capacity that they can leverage to lower their costs. And then freeware gets a revenue stream as well because we're going to capture on both sides of this market. We're going to capture something utility. We're going to capture some from the retailer. So Mm -hmm. it is really a win win win. And I truly believe the holy grail for distributed energy resources or DERs as they're called, Mm -hmm. the holy grail is energy storage. I mean, energy storage fixes all. Yeah. Right. Because what we fundamentally have as a problem with. Our aging grid. The -hmm. fundamental problem is the mismatch of supply and demand. It's like Mm -hmm. it's the age-old problem. Yeah, mismatch of supply and demand. The utility doesn't know how much energy to produce or generate at any given time because demand is unpredictable, right? Either everyone turns on their air conditioners, everyone turns them off. There's it's hot one day, it's cold one day. All these electric vehicles plug in, so the mismatch of supply and demand is the problem. Mm -hmm. And energy storage just fundamentally solves that. So. uh, you know it's i think it's really people don't really realize about that about us as a company i mean you're um you're unique Tammy and that you're quite well educated <laughs> about this but but the end goal for, for freewire is to really announce ourselves and become this this really vertically integrated energy storage company ev charging is just that kind of trojan horse for how we get the batteries on site mm-hmm. but then managing all that battery capacity at a real scale is what becomes incredibly interesting.
0: Yeah. And I think that kind of differentiates you guys as well, uh, because I don't know that I don't see other companies doing it like that or doing it at all, doing that at all. And it really gives you, you know, it's not just about the added revenue stream and and growth. It's just about the, you know, the, 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 as you grow the company into diversifying the portfolio and, and further ability to scale up. In, in other words, you're not subject now to the whims of, you know, how many consumers buy an EV. I think there's going to be a lot of them, but there's sort of like a, I don't know, like an insulating, diversifying <laughs> factor there that I think is going to serve you guys well.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so the utilization we, we'd love for utilization of EV charging to be high. Yeah. But it doesn't need to be in in our case because there's so many other value streams that a battery right,
0: exactly. can provide. Exactly. A retailer. Exactly.
1: And 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 so that's right. I mean, the the market for energy storage is only going to grow. Um, we are a bit insulated compared to others in the EV charging space. And really it harkens back to what I said earlier about the oil and gas players kind of wanting to move upstream and own more of the value chain from the utility, right? This kind of cold war happening between oil and gas and utility. Some of our customers that are the more sophisticated super majors have realized that deploying battery storage on their sites actually creates, gives them leverage against the utility. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like that age old, you know, If you owe the bank a little bit of money, they own you. If you owe the bank a lot of money, you own them. And so, if you own a lot of storage capacity in a utility's kind of area, then you effectively can you can demand things from the utility. You can say, "I want to create a custom rate structure," and that rate structure is going to be flat and and it's going to have a low pricing per kilowatt hour. You and so you you flip the balance of power in that equation. So, you know, one of our largest customers and and one of our largest investors, and this is public, is BP, right? Mm -hmm. BP is quite sophisticated. I mean, one of the most sophisticated in fact. And they understand the value of having battery storage on all of these sites. And they understand that they need to create leverage and control uh, uh, using these batteries against the utilities. And so um, that's another really interesting factor that I think is not evident at first sight, but I think you understand.
0: One of the last questions I want to ask you is how do you see um, EV charging back to EV charging evolving um, over the next 10 years, as well as sort of the EV market? And one thing that I want want to ask is, do you see, foresee consolidation in the, in the, in the charging space? You know, what, what do you think it's going to look like, especially as NEVI funds come you know come down the infrastructure um, inflation reduction act um is um on its way to implementation how do you think this all will affect the the, the charging space and and how do you see the market you know consumer uptake for for um, EVs um, evolving over the next five to ten years
1: well let me be direct that consumer um, adoption of EVs will come when the charging process becomes more simple and more reliable yeah right and it's and it's a
0: reliability bad. is like shocking to me it really is it's yeah. like really yeah. bad
1: <laughs> not it's <good>. really bad <laughs> yeah I've 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 been driving EVs exclusively now for um almost 10 years mm-hmm. and so I've, I've again I've eaten my own dog food and I don't have home charging I live in a you know multi-unit dwelling here in San Francisco right. so right. I have I street park. And I charge in public for 10 years. So I I, trust me, I know better than most what it's like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it is it is horrible. And you know, we're doing everything in our power to fix that. I think we have better than industry reliability and better than industry kind of quality in our systems, but it's still it's it's not good enough, not good enough to my standards, right? Mm -hmm. And and so there's a lot of work that needs to be done to the industry to make sure that every time you go, you can plug in and charge and some of the issues are, are, you know, they're ourselves, the industry shooting itself in the foot and some of the industries, some of the issues are the regulator shooting the industry, right? Yeah. And as an example, you saw recently, Tesla said, you know, no thanks to California free money because we don't want to install uh, payment systems, physical payment systems on our Tesla superchargers. I can tell you for a fact right now that those physical payment systems, those card readers that you tap, swipe, dip, mm-hmm. they are an incredible, incredible pain point for the industry. They, they're it's shocking how poorly they work, uh, and how poorly they can handle transactions. Um, so, you know, that's one just one tiny little example of yet
0: the state persisted.
1: <laughs> yet the state persisted, and. And they're all, they're prone to breakage. I can I can tell you they break all the time because right, they, they, you know they have, they have a hole where you can insert something. I mean, you know, their water's going to get in and dirt's going to get in. They break, right? So they so there's there's issues with the industry that has to get resolved. And I believe it's it's moving in that direction, but there's still a long long way to go. Um, then I do see consolidation in the industry happening 100. I mean, it, and it's going to happen a lot faster when when it starts it's going to be a lot faster than anyone ever expected you already see some of this sh- shell bought volta um now of course you know someone needed to buy volta right so it was shell stepped in and 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 purchased that asset which was a good deal for them
0: mm-hmm. you know
1: but even years ago bp bought charge master which is now uh, bp pulse right um shell bought greenlots which is now shell recharge solutions yeah um you have EV Connect was just purchased by Schneider, right? Uh, SK purchased Evercharge. Mm-hmm. And you're going to continue to see this happen. So the big guys are stepping in, the big players who said, that's it, I've seen enough, let's go. And they're investing billions of dollars into, into buying up different parts of the value chain of charging. By the way, the value chain of charging is, super long, is, is one of the you know most complex and, and widest things I, I've seen out there. There's everything yeah. from hardware to software to networks to you know, uh, to on the ground field support maintenance companies, right? There's just, there's so much there. So they've, they came in, but there will be a few pure play kind of charging companies who who break out of the mix, right? And these are the companies that are well-capitalized, have differentiated technologies and business models and have some level of scale, right? It would be, um, hopefully we're one of those. Yeah. You know, I think we're differentiated enough and we're scaled up enough that we certainly have the ability to break out of the pack. But there will be consolidation. And, and we've done some of that consolidation ourselves. I mean, we announced an acquisition about two quarters ago. We announced a company, yeah. called, uh, an acquired company called Mobilize, that um, uses AI to determine what the best sites are to deploy charging and, and what those cash flow forecasts look like. And, and we'll continue to do it. Um, but the consolidation will, will be fast and furious. And you're going to be left with you know a handful Of companies in the space.
0: So last question, really last question, quick question. What excites you most about this space and why? Especially, I mean, you've been around for a long time, started out in your dad's, you know, garage, so to speak, Um, working on cars, finance, left to start this company. It's doing well. We've seen so much more yet to come. (laughs) what's been the most most exciting thing about about it all
1: yeah it was there's been a lot of ups and downs since the start of the company right it, again it was to the to the industry as a whole to it wasn't evident that electric vehicles were a thing until really 2019 2020
0: yeah exactly. and
1: I I, I was pounding the table for five six years before that um but what's most interesting to me about is what it could electrification could enable. So I think it's pretty clear at this point that that driving an electric vehicle is more cost-effective than driving a combustion vehicle. And what is that? And, and by the way, it's as a simpler vehicle. So insurance rates should come down yeah. on the vehicle because of its simplicity. Um, maintenance certainly is, is almost non-existent what that really enables is, is enables people to live in different places and live further away. And I think combined with this uh, kind of remote, the zoom culture that's formed, I think it's going to change cities. Mm -hmm. I think if you, if it's half as expensive to drive an electric vehicle, you know, would you be willing to live 20% further away, 30% further away? Right. And I've always kind of thought about how that cost of that, you know, you know, in the energy, we have the levelized LCOE, a levelized cost of energy Mm -hmm. model. Maybe there's a levelized cost of the mile, right? How, when that drops pretty precipitously and pretty quickly, how that changes consumer behavior. And that's really what I'm trying to figure out. I think what some of the retailers are trying to figure out as well is how does consumer behavior and traffic patterns change? I predict it will, people will live further out, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, because it's going to be cheaper to get to work. I believe that with the rise of autonomy, and I don't mean full autonomy, it doesn't have to be the car self-driving, but the fact is I can get on the highway right now in almost any vehicle and take my hands off the steering wheel and it's going to get me to, to the exit on the highway where I need to go. Yeah. Do you know what a relief that is? Right? I'm waiting
0: for it. Yes. It's a, it's yeah. a car chute driving where I am. I mean, you just yeah. never know. I mean, you could have an alligator spring out at you or you could be hit by an older person. It's like anything. Yeah, else. that's true.
1: <laughs> but, in, but in Florida specifically, I mean, it's wide, wide lanes, open highways, bright yeah. and sunny, right. There's not extreme weather conditions. Usually sometimes there's yeah. very extreme, but yeah. usually not, yeah. not and, but it's the perfect place for it. And so I use it every single day. And you know, the, it, it's a, you know, it, it's a de-stressor. I'm willing to live farther because of it. And I think a lot of people are going to see that. I think that our entire our cities are going to change dramatically. One thing that and I'll, I'll end with this story is I was in London and I was driving. Actually, interestingly enough, uh, I left a meeting with BP and I was driving back to my hotel and I get in a black cab and these black cabs were formerly these these diesel uh, vehicles and right. it kind of shook and they kind of made a noise and a grumble every time you got in them and now they they've come in and they've electrified many of these black caps a company called levc mm-hmm. and so the, the cabbie is uh he's chat he's chatting with me he's talkative i tell him that my father was a taxi driver for 26 27 years and so we have a little bit of connection sparked up there he tells me he's a cleveland browns fan believe oh, it or wow. not and I couldn't believe it, couldn't believe it and, um, but we talk about that a little bit and I ask him, Hey, what's, you know, how do you like driving this vehicle? And he goes, you know what? I didn't expect this, but you know, every day when I was coming home from work after driving my old black cab, I would be tired, right? I would have that smell of fumes of diesel mm-hmm. that, you know, I would have a headache. The vehicle shook all the time because it's diesel and I'm driving 14 hours a day. And I could feel the aches and pains in my shoulders and in my back. Right. Driving this car, I come home and I'm not tired anymore. I don't have headaches. The car's smooth, and just that those micro vibrations they don't affect me anymore. My my wife tells me that I'm I'm happier, more generally, more you know, uh, awake and less tired when I come home. And when I heard that, I thought, Oh my God! You know, we think EVs are are great for. You know, regular consumers like you and I, right? Because they happen to be more cost effective and cooler. Yeah. But for the people that operate vehicles professionally, who's who made that a career, the fact that they can come home less tired, yeah, it's 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 a game changer. Like that that that's that's when I realized that what we were, we were doing was was really
0: really worth it. Well, Arkady, thank you so much for being on the show today. It was a real treat and pleasure to, to talk with you and hope you come back, especially as you guys continue to grow and scale up.
1: Thanks for having me, Tammy.
0: You've been listening to Fueling the Future of Transport. This show is hosted and edited by Tammy Klein, produced by Carolyn Schneer and engineered by Alexander Nikolic. To hear more great episodes of this show, learn more and sign up for a free bi-weekly newsletter, visit transportenergystrategies.com.